Appendix 4. What is humanism? There is only one rival worldview and religion to the Christian faith, and its history dates back to the dawn of creation. This religion can aptly be called, and indeed it should be called, humanism. Humanism, as the name implies, emphasizes the centrality of man in every area of life, his reason, his ethical nature, his purpose. It is an ism which suggests that it is much more than one particular dogma or tenet. In a most basic definition, humanism is the result of man throwing off his responsibility and accountability to God. We call this autonomy, or self-law. Made in God's image, Adam and Eve were decidedly against doing things God's way, so they chose their own way, and as a result, plunged the world into inexorable sin and death. Unless we boast in ourselves, assuming we would have done much better, we should remember that we would have done the very same thing. Humanism is thus a full-on assault and campaign against God, his law order, and man's true purpose and calling. The healing of the nations can only come when we deal with this great predicament. The Bible explains the core problem with mankind in this way when the serpent said to Adam and Eve, quote, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. End quote. Genesis 3.5 The word knowing should be understood to mean determining, as in Adam and Eve, in their insurgency against God, would attempt to determine that which is righteous and that which is unrighteous, a task that solely belongs to God. It is this spirit of outlandish rebellion that marks humanism. This defiance, we should note, is the impulse of man to assert, at every turn, his superiority and sovereignty over and above God, worshipping and serving the created instead of the Creator. See Romans 1. In chapter 1, I laid out the covenantal nature of the gospel of the kingdom and God's subsequent relationship with the created order, man included. Since the goal of this book is to equip and educate towards the goal of healing nations, it is important to know how this covenantal relationship works itself out in the world. Our current pharmaceutical cabal, unpleasantry, derives much of its beliefs from humanist presuppositions, as we'll see shortly. Nevertheless, we need to note that the serpent's temptation of Adam and Eve was a counterfeit covenant with counterfeit terms and conditions. It was a false gospel preached to the first couple, and it is a false gospel that permeates the medical world today. Using covenant theology, we can ascertain the false narratives and presuppositions and combat them. Humanism's Covenant Throughout the Bible, we find that the structure of God's covenant has five components, and the acronym spells out the Greek word for God, theos. They are, one, transcendence, who's in charge, who's the ultimate authority. Two, hierarchy, to whom do I report. Three, ethics, what are the rules and parameters of the relationship. Four, oaths, what happens when I obey or when I disobey? 5. Succession. What are the future plans and purposes of this relationship? What can we expect the future to look like? 
Every counterfeit covenant will have these same elements. Satan is the great plagiarizer because he is unable to be creative like God. And for the humanist who rejects God's ethical parameters, it looks like this. 1. Transcendence Casting God aside, man is ultimately in charge of his own existence, and thus he is the ultimate authority. Since he is an evolutionary creature, molecules of matter in motion, he gets to determine his own survival and meaning. In the humanist formulation of the world, God does not have original ownership of the created order. Man has inherited it from the primordial goo of naturalism. Man thus is the sovereign. It could be no other way. 2. Hierarchy Man reports only to himself. He is not subordinate to God's authority, and as a result, he is not predisposed to God's demands. Man rules over the creation and asserts himself as the author and finisher of creation. He represents himself and therefore must control the natural world however he sees fit. It is simply his evolutionary impulse to control and manipulate others. You can see why vaccine mandates come into play. 3. Ethics With man as central, the rules and parameters of his being are therefore subjective and relative. In order to enforce his will, man must recreate the Tower of Babel, the all-seeing, all-knowing Orwellian state, and collectively demand subservience from those beneath him. When it comes to that which is right and wrong, the biblical and ethical model will not suffice. It is not what is right that matters, for this priest supposes a transcendent standard, but that which is expedient takes the primacy, and that which is expedient will only come about through power and coercion. Ethics become situational, pragmatic, and totalitarian. 4. Oaths As it pertains to the implications of his newfound ethical worldview, man will only make an oath to himself, and certainly not to God. Man only answers to man, and the repercussions for violating this covenant oath are purely subjective in nature. Man determines his own will and his own consequences. When the humanist is able to exert his power and authority, he will do so holding others to a different standard he himself cannot attain. 5. Succession The future of this worldview is entirely political and self-serving. Being a law unto himself, man sees his word as being salvation. It is salvation by man's law, a works-based salvation. The future looks like the unceasing accumulation of power and control over other men. Liberty is a figment of the past. The state, man's incarnational god, is now the sovereign sustainer and helper. The future is evolutionary progress into the unknown. It is a blind progressivism with the desired result of more and more power. Worldviews at odds A sad reality is that many unwitting Christians believe and defend some of these humanist concepts. They go on about Christians not being involved in such unspiritual pursuits like medicine, politics, and vaccination. They remove themselves from these discussions because, so they believe, God does not have anything to say about them. It has been said that humanists believe in history but not God. 
while Christians believe in God, but not history. These two worldviews could not be further apart. There is no reconciling them. There is no peace between them. They are at war with each other because both are irreconcilably starting from two different presuppositions. Christianity starts with God and his authority. Humanism starts with man and his self-proclaimed authority. Everything that flows from these foundational principles grows farther and further apart, result being endless conflict and frustration. Yet the problem remains. Christians ought to believe in God and believe in history. For God is the author and orchestrator of history. He is the creator and the sustainer. He has proven himself to be concerned with history, for he entered history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is God's plan for the knowledge of himself to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2 verse 14. But we don't always believe this, do we? Humanists reject God and believe that history is the inevitable self-expression of man's self-determined creative will. This you-do-you religion has taken central stage in our colleges and universities because it believes and acts in and for history. As a result, humanism is an advancing ideology that has crushed the Christian West. The reason it has crushed the Christian West is because the Christian West let it happen. While Christians were focusing on their multi-billion dollar buildings and programs, pharmaceutical industry contended for culture by taking control, squashing, as we'll see in the coming chapters, any decentralized efforts at medicine and healthcare. Again, they did not just take the wheel, we jumped out of the car. The quicker we can acknowledge that these worldviews are utterly and entirely opposed to one another, and the quicker we can repent, turn away by changing our minds, from handing the world over to the dominion and rule of man, the quicker we can see liberty and prosperity thrive in the world. This will require a whole lot from Christians. It will require us to stop believing the myth of neutrality. There is no neutrality. Either we are with Christ or we are against Christ. Matthew 12 verse 30. We live in God's covenant world, which means there is only that which aligns with God and that which is deviated from God. Nothing is neutral, everything is covenantal. Allopathic medicine, vaccination, glyphosate, all of it matters, and either it aligns with God's law word, or it is opposed to God's law word. Christians who get this principle of no neutrality down are Christians who are well equipped to win the battle against humanism. We also need to see the comprehensive gospel as outlined in chapter 1 as being a global vision for healing, which is the point of this book. No longer can we let the United Nations dictate to poorer countries things like abortion and homosexuality, especially when they dangle the almighty American dollar in front of them. Humanism is not going to go away until it's conquered with the gospel of the kingdom. And humanism will go on completely unchallenged and unaffected by this gospel so long as Christians remain recluses, only coming out every four years for a presidential election. So, dear Christian, sound the alarm. We must wake up. Pastors must preach this and churches must do something about it. However, 
there are more components to this problem that we need to keep in mind, especially considering the fact that our strategies and tactics are not the same as the humanist. Reformation versus Enlightenment For 500 years now, the West has been in constant flux due to the war between Christianity and humanism. When the Reformation spread across Western Europe, cultural renewal and revival took place. Men and women had a renewed vision and purpose for life, thanks to the labours of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Pierre Viret, to name only three, the liberty and freedom of the gospel saturated the land. Work and vocation now had a fresh purpose. The priesthood of all believers was hastily established and affirmed. The right and duty of private judgment was reasserted with confidence. The centralized oligarchy of the Roman Catholic Church had received a severe blow. As the church was finally unleashed to serve the kingdom and not itself, nor its gatekeepers, Protestantism started contending for the future. Even though the West was flourishing thanks to the gospel of the kingdom, it was not without opposition. The Enlightenment, along with the Renaissance, spread just as quickly as men and women began to assert the centrality of man in their everyday lives. The Renaissance, in the 15th and 16th centuries, was a revival of art and humanities. The Enlightenment, in the 17th century, was more a scientific revolution. The former had more to do with literature and rediscovery of classical philosophy. The latter was about industrialization, rationality, and scientific methodology. Both were contenders for culture, and both were not without serious problems. It was the French philosopher René Descartes, 1596-1650, whose famous quip, Cogito ergo sum, set the world on fire. The phrase is translated, I think, therefore I am. And it became the hallmark ideology for Enlightenment philosophy. Descartes' point was to establish a foundation for knowledge predicated on his ability to think and reason. The fact that man was able to think about and doubt his existence proves his existence. Why would he need God? While certainly other Enlightenment philosophers had their contributions, Descartes stands out among the giants. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their thinking became corrupted. Sure, they incurred the promise of physical death, and their emotional life was just as polluted. But we cannot forget that their mind was tainted too. Contrary to the Enlightenment's elevation of man's reason, the belief that man's mind is ethically pure and neutral untouched by sin and depravity. The Bible declares that the whole of man's being was poisoned by sin, including his thoughts. Man's reason and thought processes did not go unscathed by our sin against God. This is why, at its root, the Enlightenment is philosophically untenable. One thing that Jesus died for was man's wrong thinking. Christ redeems your soul, no doubt, but he also redeems man's faulty thinking and reasoning. We are all made in the image of God, and part of our image-bearing responsibility is our reflection of God in our thinking. We are whole beings and bodies, mind, soul, heart, and flesh. We think, we feel, and as a result of God's creative handiwork, we are. We exist. And we exist because God exists. 
The entirety of our being rests on him. We were created to create, produced to produce, caused in order to cause. God thinks, we think. God feels, we feel. This is basic to Christian theology, which stands in sharp contrast to non-Christian theology. Central to Cartesian philosophy are the following two assumptions. 1. Truth is self-existent, and thus it exists without any relationship to God. Humanists call these brute facts. In other words, truth is not necessarily something that relies on God for its existence. 2. Our being, what we call ontology, is derived not necessarily from God, but from the fact that man is reason. Permit me a moment to explain. Because man thinks, and his thinking has to be true, otherwise we are delving into the realm of the absurd, man thus is. Some sympathetic humanists would say that a god is somewhat important to this process. Others would suggest that it is not. The underlying problem with rationalism is the belief that our thinking is somehow independent of God. If sinful man can rid himself of, of accountability to God, he is thus free to think and free to explore whatever he wants. This type of reasoning has infiltrated the minds of many here in the West, and it is metastasizing all over the world. If man's reason is supreme, then man's thinking is free, and as a result his existence is free, free from any responsibility towards the Creator God. In contrast to this rather dreadful position, the Bible presents something altogether contradictory to this philosophy. The Bible offers us a sharp distinction between the Creator God and the created men. Romans 1 verses 18 through 32. It is not as though we are free to create our own existence, elevating our minds and wills above the created order. We are not free nor permitted to do so. Our minds are given to us by God in order to think God's thoughts after him. The rebellious mind wants to declare autonomy. He wants to be a law unto himself. Genesis 3 verse 5. The sanctified holy mind wants to declare theonomy. He wants to be obedient to the law of God, his maker. This is the Christian theory of knowledge. Knowing and being both presuppose the creator and our accountability to him in all things. As such, our tactics when dealing with humanism must be informed by these presuppositions. Power religion versus dominion religion. There is one more paradigm I would like us to consider before we move on, and it has everything to do with how these rival religions do battle in history. In chapter 3, we analyze history and how we got into the medical mess we are in. However, it is pertinent that we deal with these clashing strategies in order to better understand the mess. Like Christianity, humanism as a doctrine is impractical unless it has a coherent blueprint for social action and order. Ideas have consequences, and unfortunately, it is we Christians who do not always see it this way. Humanism works with one central premise, the acquisition and maintenance of power. Since humanism works with the assumption of sovereignty of man over against the sovereignty of God, 
it can only attempt to accumulate and consolidate power in a centralized fashion. This worldview barks up the idea of serving the living God so it can only serve itself. Seeing that man is the product of evolutionary thought, why wouldn't he do what he can to advance his own agenda? Humanism is a religion because religion is simply faith and belief in a set of fixed presuppositions. Faith in man and belief in man's superiority. In a manner of speaking, humanism is the inversion of the dominion covenant. Instead of being lawfully subordinate to God and his plans for the world, man serves only himself and exercises not a religion of servanthood dominion, but self-serving domination. A centralized power and control in the form of the state arises for the purpose of exerting man's own will. This is the power of religion. What makes Christianity distinguishable from this perversion of man's existence is God's law word. Christians do not live for themselves. They live to serve and worship God. As they serve God, they accomplish God's wishes for the world, the cultivation of every area of life, including health, in order to advance human productivity and flourishing, all of it in service to God. Economics plays an important role too. When Christians and nations are faithful to God, exercising proper dominion through service and righteousness, God blesses and makes them fruitful, but only to the degree that they align with biblical law. When cultures throw God into their own subjective trash can, God brings curses, stifling their productivity and unholy subjugation. Power religionists force their will on others. Dominion religionists serve others, do what is right, and trust God in the process. Power religionists lie, cheat, and steal in order to get ahead and capture more and more power. Dominion religionists tell the truth, always share with others, remain obedient stewards of what God has already given. Power religionists are secretive, hiding and obfuscating the vaccine ingredients so unsuspecting customers won't catch on. Dominion religionists walk in the light as he is in the light. 1 John 1, 7, men and women of integrity and entirely honest. As you can see, there is a stark contrast between these worldviews. If the nations are to be healed, they are going to need to know and apply these principles. Culture of death. The humanists have offered up nothing good for the world. Humanism's rotten fruit has resulted in communism's bloody 20th century. From Stalin to Hitler to Mao, the human lust for power and control knows no boundaries. A rejection of God, who is life, will only incur death and destruction. Love your neighbor as yourself? That doctrine will not suffice. Love God and serve him only? Not when you can do things your way. This constant impulse to rebellion and cosmic insurrection will only and always produce death. You cannot reject the giver of life and expect life to be the resultant outcome. It does not work that way. It never works this way. When it comes to how humanism works itself out in a culture of death, there are two main religious tactics involved. No movement or philosophy or cause in society can make progress and survive for the long haul 
without an identifiable philosophy of life and religious presuppositions being embraced by its shareholders and foisted on its enemies. These are two of the main ideologies being foisted on us today, the first being alchemy. Alchemy in a traditional sense refers to the medieval chemists whose experiments in utilizing gold and other materials to achieve health and wellness turned up void. In my definition, I'm referring to the pharmaceutical industry's attempt at taking a witch's brew of adjuvants and trying to pretend as though injecting it into one's muscle tissue and bloodstream will produce a positive outcome. If man is going to escape living in God's world, he is either going to have to kill himself or transcend himself. He has to become a new creation, and the way this is accomplished is through power and chemistry, an unholy union with colossal ramifications. If the humanist is to transcend himself, he has to abolish time, reach a higher consciousness, and escape finitude. He must control the masses through the statist interventionalism. Whether it is the vehicle of government schools, infanticide, or a vaccine program, all of it falls underneath this draconian paradigm. Alchemy is the esoteric science of the religion of Gnosticism, and alchemists are what honest, self-conscious vaccine manufacturers should call themselves. To repeat, humanism in general will lead to a two-pronged strategy in order to impose its will. Alchemy is the science, Gnosticism is the religion. Gnosticism is an old religion, dating back to the 1st and 2nd centuries. Its meaning refers to secret spiritual knowledge, which is a means for control and power. In its early context, it was the cult of self-proclaimed Christians who emphasized secret knowledge over the orthodox teaching of the church. Gnostics never deal in terms of ethics. They do not affirm the concepts of sin and transgression and moral dysfunction. Instead, Gnostics speak of ignorance, the ultimate sin. Only when one obtains this secret knowledge can one be considered in the upper echelon of importance. These two ideologies, alchemy and Gnosticism, are both deployed in the medical industry of our day. Case in point, scientific investigation. Science should not be a secret endeavor by the elite, government-controlled and government-protected so-called experts it must be a publicly disclosed process, whereby there is a division of labor, open knowledge with carefully documented data. There should be no government-protected exemptions on the disclosure of information and the responsibility for its contents. Using repeatable experimentation and basic consumer protection laws which govern injury to others, human life should be of such a value as to exhaust all study, testing, and prospective solutions before administering, administering medicine, especially vaccines. Modern science came to the world because of the Reformation in Europe, not because of the Enlightenment. The only thing the Enlightenment has contributed to science is the attempted confiscation of science for the purposes of humanism, more power, secrecy, and control. Humanists took the presuppositions of the Enlightenment married them to alchemy and Gnosticism, all for the purpose of controlling the material world with an eye towards totalitarian control. What has it given us? 
womb-to-tomb medical tyranny. If the humanist, allopathic industry cannot abort you, they'll give you autoimmune complications by repeatedly vaccinating you. If that doesn't work, they will get you on a statin as soon as possible. After all, heart disease can be a problem in your 30s. What's next? Booster shots for adults. More newly developed medicine with a million other side effects. Thus, the results of the humanist worldview. Conclusion. Humanism is not just a philosophy. It is a religion. It is not just a religion, however. It is an ethical deviation from God's covenant standard. Due to its inescapable presuppositions, humanism flaunts itself as freedom but has sealed its fate. Its high-handed rebellion promises to have a far better program for human flourishing, but it only results in more disease, more cancer, and more death. As a counterfeit covenant model, humanism hijacks the glory of God, desiring the glory of man to be worshipped and acknowledged in the world. This ancient rival religion has offered the world a totalitarian nightmare. Power religion at its core is fundamentally at odds with the Christian gospel of peace, righteousness, and human longevity. It thrives on secrecy and mysticism. The Christian answer to healing the nations looks nothing like the humanist vision. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is self-giving, not self-seeking. The kingdom that Christ came to establish is not about secrecy, but walking in the light. It is the only true answer to the world's problems, including the problems we face pertaining to health and vitality. In a manner of speaking, this is a gospel issue, hence this book.